continue on in Matthew chapter 25. It'll be up here in just a moment, but not yet, because people will start reading it. Uh, I wanted to share a little bit about this funny thing that, that happened to me when I was on staff with InterVarsity. I was at a conference once, and uh, one of my fellow staff came up, and he didn't come from uh, a great family. And we were sitting there talking, and, uh, and he was sharing with me his summer plans, and he's like, yeah, this summer I'm going to get in a car, I'm going to basically travel across the United States, and I'm going to stay with, with, with brothers and sisters the whole way as I go. And I go, whoa, like, I, I thought you had a smaller family. Like, you, you, it seems like you have a, you know, a big family. They're scattered all over the, the United States. And he goes, no, 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 brothers and sisters in Christ. And I was like, oh, I thought you meant real family. And it came out of my mouth, and it, it's like, what is, right? <laughs> right after I said it, I'm like, that was theologically so stupid. Like, what are you doing? Like, now he knows that you're theologically dumb. Um, <laughs> But, like, it was one of those things that was my visceral reaction. It came out before I could put it through my Christian filter, and it was out there for, for all to see. There was a few other people that were sitting there. Um, and I think if I'm honest with myself, that that's still to this day, there's threads of that that go through. You know, um, I have this strange relationship with my brother that my wife and I think his wife are kind of astounded by, which is, like, we are unbelievably down for one another. Like, if he had anything that was going on, I would totally be there. If they were in financial trouble, I would totally be there. If he needed a place to stay or if his kids needed something or, you know, like, whatever it is. If you have a sibling, you may relate to this. In a lot of cases, this is how it is. And the the weird part about our relationship is not that. The weird part about our relationship is that we can go months and months and even over a year at a time without talking. And my wife is like, why do you not call your brother? I'm like, because I don't like the telephone. I'm on the phone enough in my work life. You know, there's this thing like when we're together, we're bros. And there's like, you know, a shared father and mother. There's a shared perspective on God. There's a shared, right? Like there's all of this shared stuff that we, that we have together. And I think because of that, or just because of the love between siblings, we are very, very, very down for one another, and we'll do pretty much anything for one another. And as we jump into Matthew chapter 25, we get, a, we get a sense of how Jesus sees this same thing as it targets the church, as it relates to the church. In the middle of this passage, he throws in this kind of powerful statement that we're going to center around today as the thing we really anchor our, our time and our message around, but it has to do with who are your brothers and your sisters, and what does that mean? And in this case, we've been going through the the teachings of Jesus as they relate to some of the most important things that have to do with life. In this case, it's what happens at the end. What does the end look like? What does Jesus care about at the end? And what role is Jesus playing in this whole kind of like wrapping up of human history? And it's a pretty fascinating topic. And so we're coming to the end of Matthew chapter 25. This is where we put kind of the period on the end of the message that we've been speaking for a bunch of different weeks. And I'll catch us up as to where we've been just so we have all the same context. But let's read the passage first. It's Matthew 25 verse 31 to start. And then we'll, uh, we'll go through the whole thing. All right. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one, from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay, so the first thing that we see, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop real quick before we go on. The first thing that we see is Jesus is shifting from where we've been. What he's been talking about from here, from, from this point forward, was his disciples asked him, how will we know when the end is coming and what will happen as this, thing, whole, this, this whole thing wraps up? The first thing, if you remember, and if you've been listening with us for a while, is the first thing, he sets expectations with people that it's not going to be easy. So we spent a bunch of weeks on this as to what's it going to be like? Well, he starts talking about wars and rumors of wars. He, talk, he starts talking about like sickness and famine. He starts talking about persecution. He's laying out all of these things, and he basically is setting the disciples' expectations, the hearers' expectations, don't expect a cakewalk. Don't expect a cakewalk. He's been talking about for chapters and chapters how the kingdom of God is in, at hand. And what they might think or be tempted to think is because Jesus has come and because he's here now, what that means is the rest of my life is going to be easy. And Jesus squashes that straight out of the gates. And the main message he lands, which I'll, I'll summarize a whole bunch of long sermons into a couple statements, is it's going to be tough on the circumstances around you, but there's a kingdom within you that is powerful and will give you joy, it will give you strength, and it will allow you to triumph. So when we say this, it's this weird collision for, for us who follow Jesus, which is like, life is not going to be easy. The gospel does not promise you that life will be easy. In that sense, it promises you that you will have an abiding joy and a victorious strength that lives in you that will allow you to triumph in hard times. It's a very different thing, right? Like we've all seen how this thing gets twisted where it's like, hey, follow Jesus, get rich. Or follow Jesus and everything is good. And it's like, that's not what Jesus said. He said, follow Jesus, things get hard, but the strength that's within you will triumph over the, 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 the powers around you. And so that's the first thing that he anchors us in. The second thing that he anchors us in is be ready, be alert. The way I've described this in the past is be on the court, right? The idea is like if you go to a Warriors game and you're in the stands, you have a different experience of the game than the people on the court, Right? If you need to go to the bathroom and get a Pepsi, that's okay in the middle of the game. That would not be for Durant, <laughs> right? Whatever it is. They are like focused. They are in the action. They are fully invested. All of their senses are oriented around this one thing. Everything in their life has served this moment, and they are going for it hardcore. Very different than the experience of being at a baseball game, especially. Has anyone gone to a baseball game recently? It's like, it's like seven hours long. You're like eating four meals of terrible food. You know, it's like, yeah. This is, Jesus' version of this is like, you're on the court. You're alert. You're, you're dialed in. You see what's going on. It's like the watchman on a tower. Like, you're on duty. And so both are going on. And then the third major thing that he hits is what, where we find ourselves today. So let's read on. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in, I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I talked a few weeks ago about kind of the, some of the difficulty that we often have with both rewards and with punishment, right? Oftentimes we want to see everyone get rewarded, and oftentimes we want to see nobody get punished. But we also talked in that sermon or in that, in that talk together about how that really strips the power out of uh, both the seriousness of what we're doing here the gravity of what we're doing here, the importance of what we're doing here, but it also eliminates every form of reward. If everybody gets a reward, it's not a reward anymore. And so we talked about how participation trophies, for example, the idea that everybody gets rewarded, it's actually compassion misplaced or misapplied. It feels really good in the short run, just like it does to not punish people for their actions, but in the long run, oftentimes, it leads to unintended consequences. And it, it, it takes out of life this powerful stance that we have where I can apply myself fully to the thing that God's given me, and when I do that, I can look to the other side and I can say, because I'm doing this, I get to look forward to a reward that's ahead of me that's gonna be glorious and wonderful and beyond what I can ask or imagine. And in the other sense, if I don't do what's right, there's punishment on the other side of that. And so therefore, punishment and reward serve as a tutor to me to lead me to do the things that will lead to life. In this case, we need to remind ourselves that the gospel isn't good news because those who haven't done what is right are brought into the kingdom anyway. This is a huge deal. So we need to know why the gospel is good news to people. The gospel is not good news because everybody gets the reward. The gospel is good news because it enables you, somebody who has done all the wrong things, to have a moment with God where you choose, yes, I want to be a part of the thing that you're doing, and then he empowers you to live in a way where you deserve to be rewarded. That is very different. That is very different. And I think sometimes, again, compassion misled takes us off course from the truth of what God has for us. It hinges upon us receiving him and honoring him as king. Compassion is doing everything you can to empower the other person to choose to do what's right, but not stripping them of the power of their choice. 
Let me say that again. Compassion is investing yourself fully to enable people to do what is right and to choose what is right, but not stripping people of their choice. Because if you strip people of your choice, you've stripped someone of their power to love. You cannot choose to love God if you do not have a choice. We cannot make choices for other people. But what we can do is we can invest our lives towards people to empower them to make choices, the right choices, and then watch them to be rewarded on the other side. And this is exactly what God does. This is exactly the gospel. Jesus comes from heaven to earth, dies the death for everybody's sins, allowing people enter into a place where they can now be empowered by his spirit to live rightly. But the live rightly part is absolutely essential. And what we see in this passage, almost more than anything, is we see that the actions that people take towards Jesus' brothers and sisters have a huge deal to do with what the interaction looks like with Jesus at the end of time. So we look at here in this passage, and we notice a few things about Jesus. One, the whole time through Matthew, there's been this thing called the Messianic secret. He's very cloaked about the way he talks about himself. He refers to himself as the son of man. When people ask him direct questions, he gives them these kind of shrouded answers. Not so in this passage at all. We see a massive shift in the way that he talks about himself in this passage. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory with all the angels with him and he sits on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will be the judge. It's totally different from the way that he's talked about himself in other parts in Matthew. He is very clear that all of this human history, there'll be a culminating moment at the end of time where he's sitting there as perfect judge, perfectly righteous. Nobody will get convicted of anything that they did, that they didn't do, and that they did both ways. And nobody will be rewarded for something that they didn't do. There's no free rewards, and there's perfect justice. Now, those who have chosen to step into the blood of Jesus, there's a whole past and a whole future that we have where we're sinning along the way, and those things are wiped away in the blood of Jesus because we've put our trust in a Savior. We've declared, I cannot do this on my own. I need a Savior. I'm totally lost without a Savior because of my own sin. I don't deserve any of this stuff, and God gives us the grace to live rightly anyway. But past that point, there's this criteria that we see that Jesus uses at this very, very important moment that we will totally care about how we lived, right? We will absolutely care about this moment as Jesus, the glorious one, in all of his splendor, is judging the nations. And he uses this kind of singular criteria that we see in here that he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. Whatever you did or you didn't do for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine you did for me. Now, there's something in this that we need to kind of center around. And that's this. How we treat other disciples of Jesus is the same thing that confirms or denies our own discipleship. That's what we see in this passage. What we see in this passage more than anything is that the perfect 
evidence of our own discipleship is how we love and honor and care for other disciples. So if we go back to my story at the beginning of my IV brother, and he's got this paradigm where the brother and sister thing that we have with one another is very real. Like that he should be able to travel across the country and have other brothers and sisters welcome him into his home and say, yeah, like I, I don't know you. One of the criteria, stranger on here. I don't know you. Yeah, like awesome. You're with InterVarsity. You're like a disciple of Jesus. Like come on in. Like stay in my home. Like that should be very real. Oh, you're a disciple of Jesus and you're traveling across the country in obedience or whatever it is. Like, and you're hungry. Oh, come into my home, have some food. And Jesus goes so extreme on this thing that at the judgment, he doesn't distinguish whether we did it to somebody else or we did it exactly to him. That is wild. Think about that kind of love for somebody. How much do you love somebody that somebody else does something to them and you take it as a 100% equal personal offense or reward to you. That is insane love. That is crazy love. And that is the type of love that Jesus has for his disciples. So much so that he says, hey, an attack on them is an attack on me. A blessing to them is a blessing to me. And, and the eternal reward system is based on it, is what we see here. That is amazing. Periodically, um, Suki and I go out of town, and we, you know, you, when you have young kids, you don't get away. It is, that sounds bad, but like, you don't escape their, their <laughs> wrath for that, that often. I'm just kidding. I just took it up a level. Because, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? No. When you have young kids, there's moments where you can get away, and they're few and far between. Was that better? Okay, that was better. All right. And periodically, Suki and I will be able to take these moments where we get away. So oftentimes, we'll go to either Napa, uh, or we'll sometimes go to, like, Las Vegas and, like, you know, go see a show and have a nice dinner and stay in a really nice hotel room for, like, almost nothing because they think we're going to gamble a bunch of money away in their casino, but we don't. <laughs> and you have these moments where you go away. But when you have young kids, you need to leave them with somebody. And so there's this moment that parents have where you're like, who am I going to leave my babies with such that when I'm away in a spa in Las Vegas or trying to relax, I'm not just thinking about them the whole time and it like spoils my trip because, you know, I'm just consumed with worry the whole time. And there's this huge moment where you're like, okay, do you have everything you need? You know, like you select exactly the right person, you make lists, you tee it all up and you still call to check in on them because these are your babies. And who you select to watch your babies is a massive deal. So Robert and Bailey Huizar have watched our babies a couple times, and uh, they are amazing, amazing, amazing. They come and they live in our house for a couple days, and they like take care of our kids. Can you imagine if one time, like, we have those little nest cams in places in our house. Can you imagine if we left them in charge and I'm in Vegas, like, sitting in a spa or something like that, and I kind of, like, peek on my phone. And, like, you know, Robert's, like, yelling at my child with, like, tons of anger and, like, pushes her over or something, you know? It's like, can you imagine the rage and fury that I would feel in that moment? 
When I got back, there would definitely be a moment that Robert and I had over what had happened while I was gone. It would be worse than if he yelled at me or pushed me over. Far worse. Far worse. The whole two parables that led up to the moment that we're in right now were about a master leaving, leaving something extremely important behind, and coming back to see how the people did with stewarding the important thing that he left behind. The culminating event of this whole thing is this teaching on what the reward and punishment system will look like when the master comes back. And we get to this moment where the perfect judge says, seemingly from this passage, there's kind of a single criteria that I'm using here. How'd you do with the ones that that were left behind to represent me? Now, I kind of just want us to stop because I don't know about you, but I get a lot more excited about like going to the nations and going outside of the body of Christ into the church and what God's heart is for the world and, and for seeing justice in, the, in, in, in real life. And I'm, I go to the marketplace every day and there's a reason for that because my passion is like, oh my gosh, actually one of my coworkers asked me this last week. They're like, what keeps you fueled? What keeps you so fired up to keep doing this? And I told them, I've had an experience with Jesus that has brought me to a place where I'm utterly convinced that everybody's life will find meaning and fulfillment and purpose once they meet their creator, their savior. And so, like, what else am I supposed to do? Right, like, that, that is my passion. I, like, love that stuff. I love those conversations. I'm really challenged when I read this. I'm not saying that those things don't matter and there's not going to be rewards about them. This is one passage, and I think there's other reasons for us to believe that that stuff matters, right? But there's a challenge when you really read Jesus. The, the amount of energy and time that he puts on loving your brothers and your sisters is huge, is huge. And for how it kind of shows up, I don't, I don't know that we necessarily translate the words of Jesus all the time into kind of where we focus our energy and our finances and how we do this thing. Like, I think if we, if we really anchored in this or... You know what's interesting about this passage, too, is like both sides don't know the magnitude of what they're doing when they do it. Both sides get to the end of the day and they go, oh, that was you that I was loving or not loving? Right? Both sides have this moment where he's like, wow, rewards, rewards. And they're like, whoa, like what is all this for? You were loving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that whole time. They're like, I was, you know, (laughs) you're right. I knew it all along. No, that's not what we see in this passage. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was doing that. But there's this thing where Jesus, it's like, there's there's an expectation, it seems like, that even with all the messiness of the way that real life works, you know, in other words, it feels like, it's not loving Jesus. Because loving Jesus, I feel like, would be a lot easier. It's, it's loving somebody who's highly imperfect. 
who then Jesus attributes to himself. But there's probably areas where the person's theology is different than yours. Right? And there's probably character defects. And there's probably a whole bunch of other list of things where the person isn't Jesus. Right? Like, if it was Jesus, you'd be like, oh my gosh, fall on my face, take everything. But it's somebody who isn't Jesus. And in the passage, it seems like people don't necessarily make the connection all the time, which I can totally relate to. And so real life is so much messier than this. And I was thinking about, you know, I've been watching, um, has anyone seen Shooter on uh, Netflix? It's like pretty mediocre, but I'm like, I'm like right towards the end of it. And there's this whole thing where the bad guys are so obviously the bad guys, and the good guys are so obviously the good guys, that it makes the justice thing really easy. You know when you watch like a superhero movie, and the bad guys get what was coming to them, and you're like, yes, justice! You know, and then like the good guy gets reward, and you're like, yes, reward! How come when we read a passage like this at the end of time where the perfect judge gives out rewards and justice, and we don't have that same reaction? Why is that? Why does, it, why does it feel so much harder? I feel like a lot of that is because the real world that we live in is, it feels like, it kind of, it feels blended a lot. Christians hurt me, sometimes more than people in the world. Right? Sometimes it feels like, you know, some of my best friends who don't know God, nor do they want to know God, are kinder to me than the ones who say they do. And so it's like this whole thing is really tough in, in kind of the blended sense of how we operate in this. But the criteria that he still uses is how did you do with the disciples? The disciples, the ones that are, that are really walking with Jesus, how'd you do with those ones? And the interesting thing is Oftentimes, that thing where we want to turn it towards the world is so strong in this passage that we take something in here that's not in here. We take this passage to mean go out there and love the poor and the sick and the ones without homes and the strangers, and that's not what this passage says at all. It does in other parts of the Bible. But this passage doesn't say that. It says, these my disciples. The reason why that criteria is set up in this passage is because this was the experience of the apostles in the first church. They were thrown in prison. They were strangers to a lot of people, showing up in towns where nobody knew them. They were hungry a lot. They were shipwrecked. They were, you, you list these things off. They were beaten and sick. And so this is like a challenge to the first church to love the people that are really doing the stuff. For the disciples that are out there, like Jesus said, this isn't an easy life. We've given up a lot to go through this thing, and they're saying, love them crazy well. These, even the least of these, is what Jesus says in this. Not just Peter, the super apostle, not just him, but what about Philip? One of the 12 that you're like, oh yeah, (laughs) Philip was in there. (laughs) right? Oh yeah, he's not talked about that much. He's like the least of these. Like, hey guys, I'm over here. Right? Like, it's not just, I don't know, 
whoever we exalt in, in church. It's not just those. It's even the least. And the thing that I want to I want to orient us around more than anything as we read through this passage is something just so simple. It's that the perfect judge uses this as the core criteria for determining our eternal future. That's kind of crazy. That's what this passage says. On the one time, on the one hand, it says that God has been dreaming up since the foundation of the world this inheritance that he has for us this kingdom that he's going to create for those who love and honor and to cherish him. And in loving and honor and cherishing him, the extension of that is to love and honor and cherish his body. There's this eternal, there's this eternal paradise that he's set up where he's the ruler and we get to gloriously sit under his rulership forever and he's so exceptionally good. And then on the other hand, there's a parallel preparation so that was the preparation for the righteous. What's the preparation? Oh, wait, it's not a preparation for the goats or the unrighteous in this story, is it? The eternal fire is a preparation for the devil and his angels. God never intended anybody to be in the eternal fire with the devil and his angels. It was not eternal punishment set aside for the unrighteous. It was the eternal fire set aside for the devil and his angels. But as people reject the king of kings, as people reject the people of God, as people turn away from the grace of God and resist actively, there comes a day where the righteous judge makes righteous judgments. But the evidence of our discipleship is how we love and honor and care for the other disciples and this is the core criteria that God uses for our love for him directly. And so I don't, honestly, I don't want to add a bunch to that. Like, I feel like, I was like, you know, let's, let's keep going. Let's make the sermon longer. Let's tell another illustration. I was like, no, 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 that's what this passage is about. And it kind of feels like, I don't know, for me, Honestly, over the past two years, I've been going through this journey where I'm starting to see how much Jesus has anchored us around loving the church. And you oftentimes, I mean, what's the classic saying? Like, oh, I love Jesus, I just don't love his church. I love Jesus, but his people, wow, they're a mess. It's like, yeah, that's not an option. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't exist in this. There's, there's no version where that happens. If the love of Jesus doesn't penetrate you deep enough that you're able to overcome and love his people and all the messiness that's there, there's no reward. That's period. And so the challenge for us is to allow the love of Jesus to penetrate us so deeply that we're able to operate in the messy world that Jesus was talking about a few chapters ago and the one that we experience all the time as we do life. It's why he's so serious about forgiveness. It's why he's so serious about reconciliation. It's why he's so serious about having grace and mercy on one another. It's because we live in a messy one. But his standard is still, can you see the face of Jesus in your brothers and sisters? And is that enough to compel you to live a life 
where you're laid down in love for the people around you. I've been so encouraged by the various expressions in this church of kind of Vivian sharing about what that looks like as Lindsay prophesies and prays over her and what it looks like as Suki loves her and gives her counsel and she submits in hard moments and where other people see financial need of people in this church and extend financial need to cover their rent and to cover food and other things. Like that's all happening behind the scenes. I get the privilege of getting to see most of that because I get to pastor and, and help facilitate some of it. But I want you guys to know that that's going on in this church. And for those of you who have been about that, like, reread this. You've been doing that for Jesus. You've been doing that for Jesus. As you extend that financial offering to that person, that was, that was for Jesus. There will be a moment where you look into his eyes and he goes, thank you for paying my rent. There will be a moment where somebody, where Jesus comes up, this is the classic one, to John Knox and goes, thank you for all the times that you welcomed a stranger into your church and made them feel welcomed that first time. Right, like this is the real deal, man. Eyes blazing like fire, staring right through you, saying, well done. Just like you loved them. That little glass of water, it was so simple to you. It mattered so much to them. That hello where you generally meant it when the person walked into your home group and you just said hello, welcome, that, that was a big deal to them. It meant nothing to you in that moment. That one where you like actually sacrificed and it really hurt, yeah, that was a huge deal to them. And wow, it was a huge deal to me. I remember this time where Suki and I felt compelled to give a decent sized chunk of money to uh, some people that are like pretty special to us. And as we prayed about it, we had a lot of joy and there's this anticipation of like, oh, we're gonna do this and they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be so blessed and they'll be able to go and rest and be on vacation. And we started to get like giddy as we did this thing and we were giving in secret. So we kind of sent off the gift and, um, and because we're their close friends, uh, they let us know, they're like, oh my gosh, like, you will not believe what just happened. Like, what? <laughs> Tell me all about it, all the details. And, and you could hear what was going on. Oh, man, the faithfulness of God. We were praying for this exact thing. And then this financial thing came in the mail and was like, we don't even know who it's from. And it's like, can you believe God's goodness? And when we got out of that conversation, I remember thinking to myself, I love that something like money can do something that's important as that. Right? It started giving me vision for my finances because I was like, you know, sometimes we're, we're taught in church that kind of money doesn't matter. And to an extent, it doesn't. Like, the most important things in life are invisible, not visible. But what money allows you to do is wildly important. God cares about money only because it's a form of power that he's given us to test what we're going to do with the power that we have. That's why money matters. Not because there's anything special about money, but because it's, it's a tangible display of power and what you will do when you're given power. And so you're given a chunk of money and you give it to somebody and then the love of God enters their life in a tangible way. 
That's crazy. Something like dirty money turns into the love of God and a testimony over somebody where they love God more because of, like, because of a gift. I love that money can do that. And the Bible talks a ton about money, but I think it's just because it's so tangible, right? Like, it's just so easy to say, this is a big amount, or this is a small amount, or like, you know, transfer from one to the other. But it happens in every other aspect of our life. It's not just money. It's our gifts and how we use our energies and where we send our prayers. Our prayers are powerful weapons. Where are we directing those things? Are they all to us? That's just a form of power. You've been given something very powerful. What are you doing with that? And the thing that I want to encourage us today is when we step back and we look at kind of the judgment thing, we look at how all this thing's going to wrap up, we're going to look at Jesus and all his glory and his splendor, and at some point in the end of human history, we're going to have this moment. It's going to be really awesome if we recognize now the power that we have to make such a huge difference on the kingdom, so much so that Jesus will be there and ready to honor us for the ways that we target our resources and our power at loving one another incredibly well. That's awesome. We're also going to spend eternity with one another. So it might be cool to kind of like high-five some people up there like, hey, gave you a grand. Whoosh. Like, <laughs> hey, I loved you. Whoosh. You know, like, whole bunch of friends. Yes, I distributed my stuff. Like, the, I'm, I'm totally kidding about that. But the Bible actually does say, use your worldly wealth to make friends, eternal friends. It actually does say that. I was kid, totally kidding about it. The thing that like fires me up is like the Jesus moment where he's like eyes burning through me. But the high fives will be cool too. <laughs> so as we leave here, I just want to like pray for us. I want to like anchor this thing in us. I want us to, to solidify this thing in our mind that man, like let's, let's, Let's send our power and our resources out towards one of us. And, and a special, special call out for the Phillips, the least of us, the least of those in our community. Finding the least of them oftentimes creates a different lens of thinking in your head. Like you have to actually look. Most times you have to actually look. And so another encouragement I just give you is like, Put those lenses on of like, who are the least of these in this community? And how do I use my power in order to make that person feel blessed and loved and cherished just like they are in God's eyes? So let's stand together and we'll pray as we receive, receive the word. All right. Lord, we thank you for the truth that comes from your word. God, thank you that we can read the stories of the Jesus and we can read his teachings and we can understand in advance what the test is based on, how it's set up, and that there's the perfect judge at the end. God, thank you that, God, we're hearing this and we don't need to be caught off guard at the end of time. God, I pray that you would orient our minds and our hearts, God, exactly in line with your mind and your heart. We don't want to have a thought in our head that's not in yours. We don't want to have an emotion in our heart that's not in yours. And so, God, I pray that, that your criteria, the things that you call most important, the things that you say, orient your life around this, God, I pray that in Jesus' name, 
you would give us strength of mind, strength of conviction, strength of heart, strength of will, power by your spirit to be able to live these things out tangibly, tangibly. And Father God, we just thank you for a day, God, where we look forward to the coming of our beautiful Savior and Messiah. Jesus, we say, come, come, Lord Jesus. We long for your returning. We long for your returning where you will wipe away, God, all darkness. You will wipe away all struggle. You will wipe away all challenge. All of it will be wiped away. God, let us live in a way, God, where we, hit, we look forward to that day and we anchor our hope in that day, not in the things of today. We give you the glory and the honor. We thank you for the privilege of being able to be entrusted with important things down here. And we pray that you'd help us to be great stewards.